The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. How's everybody doing? Doing all right? I'm doing good. Yeah, thanks for being here, guys. Uh, Can't think of a place I'd rather be than with you guys getting into the Word. Um, It's a a pleasure and a joy to to get to look at the Scriptures with you guys tonight. So if you got a, a Bible, go ahead and open it up to Hebrews chapter 12. Uh, We're going to be looking at verses 1 through 3. That's Hebrews chapter 12, 1 through 3. And if you're just joining us uh, for our Wednesday night series right now, we're in a a series called Live Like Jesus. Uh, The the point of this series is that we are taking every night a different piece or a different attribute, a different characteristic of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. and, And we're asking the question, how do we live in the way that he lived um, and so we're, we're approaching the end of this series. I think we only have a, a couple more left. But tonight, the, the topic is going to be suffer like Jesus. How do we suffer like Jesus? So before we get into it, I'm going to ask you guys to, uh, as I do sometimes, is to take about uh, 30 seconds and just invite the Lord into your heart. Invite the Lord to speak to you tonight. Um, just take a moment, submit your heart into the word and say, God, I'm ready to hear from you. I'm ready for you to speak through your word. Uh, Go ahead and do that at this time. God, you are the author and perfecter of faith. You are the sovereign Lord who has called us, who has chosen us, who has justified us, who is sanctifying us. You are the one who loved us when we were unlovable. You were the one that chose us when no one else would. You were the one that reached out to us when no one else had. Even while we were yet sinners, God, you died for us, the ungodly. And so we sit tonight uh, in submission to the living word of God. We sit tonight um, in full realization that your scripture is the ultimate truth and the ultimate reality in all of the world. And we choose to open our ears and open our hearts to listen to you, the God of the universe. Instruct us, your people, in the way that we should go. And we pray tonight that you would sanctify our minds. That you would enrich our souls. And that we would drink tonight from the living water that satisfies. There are so many in this room tonight that have been drinking, including myself, so many times from the water of this world and not satisfied by it. But Father, tonight, may we drink from the living water, the water that never leaves us unsatisfied. Holy Spirit, come tonight, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. We live in a world of suffering, do we not? We live in a world of immense pain and struggle and hardship. I really don't even need to belabor this point or even try to explain it to you because you know already. But just to make my point that the world that we live in is full of suffering, let me read you some statistics. In the next year, over 1.5 million people will be diagnosed with cancer. Over 500,000 of those will die. Of cancer in one year. Approximately 25,000 children under the age of five die every day due to poverty. 25,000 children die under the age of five every day due to poverty. That's over 9 million children every year dying because of poverty. Each year, somewhere around 500,000 people are murdered in the world. 500,000 roughly babies born in the U.S. this year that will be sexually abused before they turn 18. 
42 million abortions happen every year in the world. And at least 108 million people were killed in wars just in the 20th century. This is the world that we live in. The the fallenness from Adam knows no bounds. Every molecule, every cell of this creation that we live in is affected by the brokenness of sin. Not only by the natural causes, but also by people. We hurt each other. We kill each other. We break each other. Many of you tonight are sitting carrying burdens, whether you know it or realize it or will show it. Many of you are tonight sitting here carrying burdens of pain from the suffering of this day, the suffering of this year, the suffering of this life. Many of you are wounded and hurt by people in this room. Many of you are hurt and wounded by spouses, by children, by friends. Many of you carry around bondage and baggage from abuse that happened to you when you were a child. Many of you are constantly dealing with depression. Many of you have physical illnesses that even this moment as I'm speaking are stressing you out. Surgical things that are coming up that you're anticipating that are frightening you. All of us, every one of us is subject to the suffering that has come into the world because of Adam. John Piper said this, he said, 100 people are dying each minute. If you could hear them all, you'd hear so many screams, you'd go insane. Only God can hear them all and and not go insane. God parcels out our awareness in small amounts, lest we all go under. Only God is aware of the vastness of the suffering that happens in this world. In this very room yesterday, we did a memorial service for a woman who is a sister of a dear member of this church who was only in her 50s, who left behind three kids who died from cancer. And I sat back here and sat up here and watched people anguish and weep and cry over the loss of someone who was too young. Yesterday in Grants Pass, a friend of mine, Victor Borcher, did a ceremony in Grants Pass for a 15-year-old kid, I believe he was 15, who was run over by a car while he was on a longboard and died. This world is full of suffering, full of struggling. The tears know no end. Sam, that's the most depressing sermon intro I've ever heard. I hope so. The Christian is not exempt from the suffering. We're not exempt from it. We are called to suffer along with the rest of the world. Jesus promised it, didn't he? John 16.33, in the world you will have tribulation. Jesus didn't even say in this world you might have tribulation. He just says, in this world you will have tribulation. This is the reality of everyone who has a heartbeat in this world. Christian or non-Christian, you will have your tribulation. The Christian, in fact, lives with even more tribulation. The Christian, when he becomes saved, actually takes on more tribulation, more suffering. Not only do we suffer, but Jesus suffered. He was known in Isaiah 53 as the man of sorrows. He was known as being acquainted with grief. He was despised. He had no form of majesty that we should look at him. He was crushed. He was oppressed. He was afflicted. He was like a sheep before his shearers. He was crushed by the Lord and poured out his soul unto death. So Jesus, our Lord, suffered greater than any man has ever suffered in the history of men and women. And he says when he describes the Christian walk that you are going to suffer like me. He says, what is it to be a Christian? He says it's to take up your cross to take up your cross it's not wearing something around your neck not a piece of jewelry that is to take up the most severe and detrimental anguish of the soul that a human being can bear Jesus says in order to be a Christian you must be ready to take up your cross and suffer and die that's not what you preach before you give an altar call but that's what the Bible says He defined Christianity as walking in his footsteps. Now, I would love tonight to give an exhaustive teaching about suffering and why there is suffering and how we as Christians are to process suffering. But I don't have the time to do that. And that's not the assignment for tonight. The assignment for tonight is to ask this question. How do we as Christians suffer? And and maybe a parallel question to that is why do we as Christians have to suffer? 
Why do we have to suffer as Christians? Have you ever asked yourself that question? Jesus absorbed all the wrath of God. Sin has been paid for for the believer. The kingdom is manifest in us. It is finished. And yet here we are still suffering. Why? What purpose is there to our suffering? And if we must suffer, then how do we do it well? That's the question I want to ask tonight. That's the thing I want to run after tonight and grab onto with both hands. Now, the author of Hebrews, who wrote our text for tonight, I believe answers both of these questions. So I'm going to read it with you quickly. This is Hebrews chapter 12, verses 1 through 3. And we're going to plant ourselves in this text tonight. I'm going to exposit this to you. So we're going to look at every word, every phrase, every thought in this. And I truly believe, guys, that this text holds the answer to these questions. How is the Christian to suffer and why must the Christian suffer. Let's look at it together. Hebrews 12, 1 through 3. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him, verse 3, who endured from the sinners such hostility against himself, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. This is the text for tonight. And this is where I want to, to plant Ourselves. Now, what is the author of Hebrews? For the sake of me saying the author of Hebrews 50 times, I'm just going to say the pastor. Because some theologians refer to him as the pastor. So what is the pastor, the one writing this book, what is the pastor saying here in chapter 12 when he describes suffering for the believer? He, he calls it something here. He gives us a picture to visualize when we think about and understand the suffering of believers. And he says it's like this. It's like a race. Do you see that? He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So the pastor here in Hebrews is declaring to us the Christian life. It's like a race. Now, tonight, I want you to think and I want you to step inside the details of this race that is the Christian life. And I believe as we understand this race that the pastor, the writer of Hebrews is declaring to us, we're going to understand why we suffer as Christians and how we are to suffer as Christians. Now, what is the race that, that he's talking about here? Well, the race is not a passive experience. The race that the Christian, that you and I, if you are a believer in this room, the race that we are in enrolled in is not a passive race. It's not a leisurely walk. It's not a comfortable cruise. And it's not a pain-free time. The race is intentional. It's sacrificial. It's painful. And it's grueling. Races don't run themselves. What the pastor is saying here is he's saying, you, by nature of being a believer, are entered into a race. You're entered into a race. The, the Christian life, by the way, is never once in the Bible described as a passive posture. Salvation is all God. Justification, that's all Him. But sanctification, the Christian walk, the Christian life, the, the process of maturity as a Christian, is not something that we sit back passively in the recliner and say, Hey, God, go ahead and sanctify me. While you do that, I'm going to watch Netflix and have a Hot Pocket. That's not really the posture of the person who is being sanctified, who is being grown, who is being matured as a believer. In fact, the posture is that of a person who is signed up for at a starting line of a race and is ready to go. This is the posture that the pastor, the pastor says that the believer is to take. Some other examples of things that the Bible says we're like? A boxing match. The Bible says that to be a Christian is to be like a boxer. Someone who, who, who is constantly engaging the enemy. A toiling farmer. Someone who's constantly maintaining and focusing on their crops. A career soldier, someone who is fighting to the death day in and day out. Every decision of the soldier matters. 
This is the language that the Bible uses when it describes the Christian experience, the Christian life. Even the branch that Jesus talks about in John 15, the abiding branch. If it does not abide, it is useless. Our job is to abide. There is an active engagement for the believer that we are called to. And by nature of being saved, we are signed up for the race. That's just how it is. You may say, Sam, that's not really what I want. I just want to be justified and then I want to kind of scoot through and go to heaven. Guess what? That's not Christianity. You don't work for your salvation, but you work for your sanctification. Does that make sense? Sanctification, which is the process of God making us into His likeness, is a partnership. It's a a partnership between the Holy Spirit and between us. In which the Holy Spirit through us is, is, is forcing us to grow in maturity and obedience. The race that we are called to is a race of sanctification. It's to grow, it's to mature, and it is a non-negotiable now, I want to point out to you, if you guys are note takers, six things that the pastor wants us to know about this race. Okay, so as we're painting the picture from this text, there are six things that, that the author here, the pastor here wants us to get that we need to understand. And I truly believe if you'll be attentive to these things, you'll understand more clearly the reason for the suffering of the believer. Okay, so this is where we're going. Six things. And then at the end, I'll give you three short applications and we'll be done. That's the outline. That's where we're going. And I will say this because I think it's important that these points get more important as we go. So I would hope that you tune your ears in as we get to point four, point five, point six. These points grow in importance as we go. Let's look at the first one. The first thing that we need to see about the race is, number one, the past racers. The past racers. Look at it. Chapter 12, verse 1 says, Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight. He's given a reason for running the race. One of the reasons he gives for running the race is that there is a cloud of witnesses. Now, if you guys ever read that and been like, what in the world is that talking about? Is that talking about angels? What is the deal with that? What, what the, the pastor is trying to create in your mind is he's trying to create a picture here of you running a race. And as you're running a race, there is a bandstand, not a bandstand. There's, there's a crowd surrounding you of past saints. Past saints that have run the race before you. Now, whether or not that's a literal, like they're really sitting there watching right now, I don't know. I'm not going to get into that. But the reality is, is that the author's telling us is that when you run your race of faith, don't forget that you're not the first one to run this thing. Don't forget that there is a cloud of witnesses. We are part of a past legacy of faith. Do you guys realize that? Do you realize that you are not the first Christian to run this race? Do you realize that there are possibly billions of men and women that have run this race before you for thousands and thousands of years? Now, why is the author bringing this up? Because in context, chapter 11 is what we call the Hall of Faith. You guys familiar with that? Chapter 11 is where the author basically goes through all of these different Old Testament saints from Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Sarah, so on and so forth. And he unpacks the the, the faith of their life. In chapter 12, verse 1, where we're picking it up, is really a crescendo to the hall of faith. It's the author here saying that now because of all of these people that have run this race before you, You run your race. There's something comforting about knowing that you're not the first person to do something. My wife and I went over to visit a couple in our church who's kind of new here. They don't know a lot of people. And they just had their first kid. And they've had a really traumatic experience with their first kid. It was a really long labor. Um, Their their, their little son, he's got a, a few medical problems. It's been really tough. They haven't been sleeping. It's been really difficult. And so we came over just to hang out with them. And uh, we've had three babies, so we've run that race before, right? And we're sitting there, and they're just unloading on us, and we're going, "Uh uh-huh, uh-huh, yep, yep, remember it, hang in there, hang in there, you're going to get through it, it's going to be all right, trust me, it gets better. 
And they, and they literally are like, it's just so comforting to know that you guys have done this before. And that it's doable. And that it's possible. And there's comfort for the Christian as we suffer, as we run, as we struggle to look back and to think about how many Christians before you have made it to, glorify, to glory through this process of the race. You are not alone. You stand in a past legacy of racers. Listen to what Adolf Saphir said. He said, if all the saints of God lived, suffered, endured, and conquered by faith, shall not we also, if the saints who lived before the incarnation, before the redemption was accomplished, before the high priest entered the heavenly sanctuary, pardon the typo, rested in the midst of the discouragements and trials, how much more ought we who know this, the name of Jesus, who have received the beginning, the installment of the great messianic promise? What he's saying here is he's saying if these guys in the Old Testament lived by such a great faith and they didn't even see the Messiah, they didn't even live to understand the fulfillment of the prophecies, they didn't see Jesus, they didn't read the Gospels, they didn't have the full scripture like we do. If they lived like that, how much more should we also, my batteries are dead, but it's all good. We're not recording it anyways, right? Um, we should also live by faith as well. Can everybody hear me okay? Am I good without, am I good without this thing? Okay, cool. Now, we're not only part of a past legacy, but we're also part of a pre- present legacy. I want you guys to think about this for a moment. You are not running your race alone. Not only have people gone before you, but people are running it by you. People are running it at the same time as you. There are people in this church that are struggling with the same issues as you, that are struggling with the same hurts as you. This is why community is such a big part of the Christian experience. This is why community is essential to the growth of the believer, because we need to suffer together. Okay, that's why we're, we're championing small groups at Heritage because we believe that community is how we get through this stuff. Community is how we suffer well as believers. So not only are there people in the past that have done these things, there are people in the present. Notice the language here. The pastor in chapter 12 says, Therefore, since what? We are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses. Let us lay aside every way. He's saying... You guys are running a race. It never ceases to amaze me every time I do a foot race why hundreds of people pay money to go out and run an extended period of time together like a herd of buffalo. I just don't understand it. But there's something enjoyable about getting out with other insane people like we did on Thanksgiving when it was cold and and we could have been taking a nap and watching a parade. For some reason, you get out and you run with these people and it makes it easier. To know that people are running alongside you. That people are running with you. So I want to encourage you guys. Read your Bible. Because in the Bible there are stories of men and women that have lived lives with the same issues as you. The same struggles as you. Read biographies of Christian men and women. Hear testimonies of people that have walked and run the race of faith. And see each other grow in real time. Amen? Number two, so that's the past racers. The second thing that the, the, the pastor here in, in Hebrews wants us to understand about the race. It's not only the past racer, but secondly, the prescribed apparel. Okay, the prescribed apparel. Take a look at our text once again. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every, what? Weight and sin which clings so closely. He's saying, if you're going to run this race, you not only need to understand that you're not alone, but you also need to understand the apparel that you need to wear. You need to understand how you're to be dressed. And he lists two things specifically that you need to make sure not to do if you're going to run this race. The first one is that you need to shed the weight. Okay? You need to shed the weight. If you're an Olympic runner, you are going to pay great detail to what you wear and how much weight you're carrying. Okay, this is the reality of running 
a race. The picture is that you cannot run with your arms full. The other day, um, we were uh, Friday after Thanksgiving, we went out to Lake of the Woods and we were at um, my aunt and uncle's cabin there and we went and got a Christmas tree and, and I was letting my son play outside because he's a, a really cooped up um, city boy and he needs it and needs to get out and get dirty and cut himself and do all that good stuff because he's just inside too much, right? So we're, we're at this cabin and there's this log pile this really cool log pile. And to me, it's like up to here, but to him, it's, it's like 20 feet, right? I mean, it's huge. And I'm like, hey, Justice, you should climb this thing, you know, like boys do. So he gets all dirty and he's climbing the thing, but he's having a really hard time. And I realize the reason he's having a hard time is because he's holding on to this toy and he doesn't want to let go of the toy and he can't climb well. He can't climb right because he's so intent on holding on to this toy. And I'm sitting here watching him struggle, thinking, son, let go of the toy and you can climb the wood pile. But he just couldn't get it through his head that I've got to let go. This is what the author is saying here. He's saying if you're going to run this race, you need to let go. You need to let go of whatever it is that's keeping you from running the race. Whatever it is that's holding you back from running the race. He calls it weight. He says, let go, shed the weight that's keeping you from running the race. There's another example of this in the Bible, right? The rich young ruler. Jesus is inviting him to run the race. He's inviting him to come and follow him. And this this rich young ruler goes away sorrowful because Jesus asked him to what? Let go. He said, let go of your stuff. Let go of your money. Let go of your possessions. Let go of your pride. And I'll get some new batteries. That's a different thing. Okay. Um, Let go of your pride and you can come and you can follow me. But the rich young ruler went away sorrowful. He went away sorrowful because he what? He wouldn't let go. He could not let go. This is what the author is saying here. He's saying, in order to, to run the race, you have to shed the weight. You've got to drop your stuff. Now, what is the weight here? What is he talking about when he talks about weight? He's talking about anything that sways your heart above God. Anything that has more say in your life about what you're supposed to do and how you're supposed to act and what you're supposed to cherish than God. He's talking about the idols in our lives, the things that we hold so tightly to that keep us from serving God, that keep us from running this race race fully. That's what he's talking about, right? I remember going backpacking um, years back, and I went with a buddy who'd never gone backpacking before. And when I mean backpacking, I mean that you you literally are are carrying everything that you need uh, for your camping trip on your back, okay? So it's not like you drive in and you got your cook stove and your sausage and all that kind of stuff. Backpacking means everything on your back is what you need for the next three days. So you meticulously pack this bag with just what you need and everything, every ounce counts, okay? It all matters. So I I went backpacking with my buddy, Daniel, who'd never been before. He wasn't really an outdoorsy kind of guy. And he just thought he was going to bring everything because he thought he was a tough guy and he threw a cast iron skillet in there and he threw all his cra- like cans of stew. I'm like, dude, freeze-dried meals. Come on. Cans of stew and all this crazy stuff. And, and we somehow, we, he wasn't able to go at the same time. So we, we went up, we got to the lake. He was going to meet us up there. Well, it was starting to get dark and we hadn't seen him. He wasn't there. We kind of start freaking out. And so we, I, me and a buddy ended up hiking all the way back in, calling the police. They put out a search for him. They ended up pulling him over for a taillight as on his way home. Turns out he got lost, okay? He went on the wrong trail. And the story, though, was really funny because about two miles into him being lost, he starts to panic. And he starts to freak out because his pack is so heavy, he doesn't think he's going to be able to make it back. So he starts throwing stuff out of his bag into the bushes, cast iron skillet, beef stew, all strewed across the, <laughs> across the trail. And he's telling us this story. And he's like, you don't think I'm going to get in trouble for littering, do you? I'm like, I just think you're ridiculous, right? But here's my point. You'll know whether you're running the race by how quick you are to shed that weight. You'll know whether or not you're really running the race of faith, whether you are quick and diligent to say, what in my life is hindering me? If you're an Olympic runner, you are not wearing a robe. Okay? You're not. Because it's going to hold you down. It's going to tangle you up. He says it tangles closely. He not only says weight, but he says sin, right? He says anything that comes in that keeps you from running this race, it's got to go. It's got to go. Number three, the third thing we need to see about this race, not only is it the past racers and not only the prescribed apparel, but we also need to see number three, the perseverant 
pace, the perseverant pace. Take a look at the text again. He says, therefore, since we are surrounded by a great cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance. Now, the author here is cluing us in once again to something we need to know about this race. And that is the type of race that it is. Okay, this is not a sprint. This is not a dash. This is a marathon. The pace, the perseverant pace that he's calling us to is that of a marathon. Now, I have some experience with marathons. I ran my first marathon last year. Okay, I would never recommend anyone in their right mind doing so um, because it's really hard. But I'm glad that I did it. Uh, It was miserable because I ate steak and potatoes the night before, went to bed at 1 o'clock, slept in past my alarm, didn't eat breakfast, and then tried to run 26 miles. It was terrible. Let me tell you what. Talk about overconfidence. So I ran my first race, uh, my first marathon a year ago. And here's the thing about marathon running. I just want to explain a, a couple things. The anatomy of a marathon. And, and they, they, everyone agrees on this. 26 miles. The first half is the first 20 miles. The second half is six. Now, when I f- first heard that, I'm like, yeah, right. That's bad math. You know? And then I hit the last six miles. And I'm like, wow, this is Hard. My, my, I hit the wall hard. I had nothing left, nothing left in my tank. And, and so for that reason, here's the thing about marathons. The first 20 miles are everything and nothing. What I mean by that is that how you run the first 20 miles is everything in terms of importance and nothing in terms of what the, whether the, really the hard part of the race has come yet or not. Marathon running is entirely different. Everything matters. Everything that you do in the first, from when you take water breaks to what you eat that morning to when you stop uh, and, and walk or, or, or how, how your pace is set, how fast you go, all of it matters in the last six miles. And you pay the price in the last six miles. Now, what the author of Hebrews is calling us to see is that this is not a sprint. It is a marathon. The Christian life is not a sprint. Now, when I started my marathon, I was amped. I was pumped. I did the Eugene Marathon. It's like 7,000 people or something. We're like this whole city block is just completely crammed full of people. Full marathoners, half marathoners. We all start and I'm excited. My heart's pumping and I'm trying to just slow down, slow down, save your pace. Okay, and I'm going, feeling really good until about mile 10 when I realized that all the people I was running with were half marathoners. And they all split off and now I'm by myself. And I still got... 16 miles to go (laughs) by myself, right? I did not save enough energy. I didn't run the race with precision. I didn't take care of my pace and I suffered for it. The Christian walk is the same. You guys, listen to me. You are not saved to a sprint. You are saved to a marathon. The Bible calls us to faithfulness. The Bible calls us to endurance, the Bible says that, that when, you please the God, when you please God, it is when you live a life of faithfulness. And the faithful life of the Christian is not big, romantic, giant decisions. Oftentimes, it's millions of obscure, unexciting, unromantic, little opportunities to be obedient and to be faithful every day. It's every second choosing to obey God, choosing to say no to the flesh, choosing to submit, choosing to love those around you, choosing to run and to run and to run and to run and to run, even when you're exhausted because this race is a marathon. Now, here's the good news. Jeremy, Pastor Jeremy pointed this out to me this morning as we talked about the servant. It was so encouraging. I want to encourage you in this. Here's the good news about a marathon. If you trip, in a dash or in a sprint, it's over. If you trip in a marathon, you get up. You keep going. You get up and you keep going. I walked a lot in my last six miles, man. <laughs> but I never stopped. You just keep going. The point of a marathon, at least for me, was just to finish. I just wanted to finish. And Caroline, it took me four hours and 23 minutes. But I finished. I crossed the finish line and I saw my family and it was an amazing moment. And the race was great, not because I sprinted it, but because I finished it. Guys, live for the long haul of faith. Make decisions for faithfulness. Now, I want to ask you a couple questions. 
Are you running for the long haul? Are you, when you think about the decisions you're making in every small thing and every large thing, are you posturing yourself for a long life of faithfulness to God? Are you investing in a foundation right now that is going to set you up to be useful to God all throughout your life? Or are you literally veering the car off the road because you can't control yourself and because you're an idolatrous to things and stuff and money and people? Or are you saying, I am building a foundation of godliness now to posture myself to run this whole baby out all the way to the end, all the way to glory? Okay, again, let me clarify. I'm not talking about being justified. I'm not talking about working for your salvation. I'm talking about the the faith, the the growing of the Christian walk and obedience. The growing up, the maturing. it's, It's a marathon. It's a race. Number four. Number four is this. Not only is it the past racer is not only the prescribed apparel, not only the perseverant pace, but number four, it is the producer of the course. I want you to see the producer of the course. Look at the text. Let us lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely. Let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. Every one of you right now has a different race. We're all racing for the same prize. We're all racing for the same purpose. We're all racing for the same master. But every one of us has a different race. And that race has been set before you. I want to encourage you guys. This race is not a treadmill. Praise God. I hate running on the treadmill. It's the worst. Three miles in, I'm done. Okay? It's not a track, which is also equally monotonous. I'm going nowhere. It's a, it's a course. You're getting somewhere. Every step that you take is getting you closer. And this course has been lined out for you by a sovereign and loving and compassionate God. That knows your weaknesses. That knows you're going to cramp up on mile 14. That knows your deficiencies. That knows that you didn't eat breakfast and get sleep that night. And he has laid a course out for you that you can handle and that you can run. In his providence, he's done this. Now, the exhortation for you here, the command for you here, guys, listen, is run your race. We spend so much time as Christians thinking about what our race should be or what it would be if I wouldn't have made that decision. If only I wouldn't have done that, my race would be better. Or maybe I missed somehow the plan that God had for me, right? It's not how it works. Where you're at right now, what God has you doing right now, who God has you loving right now, where God has you serving right now, what God has you struggling with right now, the infirmity of your body right now, the pain that you're feeling right now is a course that God has made for you to run. And His providence and His eternal knowledge has set it out for you. Is there comfort in that for anyone in here? So much comfort. We have a producer of the course. And the command is for us not to look around and say, well, why is his course better than mine? And why is her course easier? And why is everyone's course on Pinterest so cool? And why is everyone's course on Instagram seem so much better than mine? Because it's fake. Okay, your call is to run your course. Your course. Your course may be to suffer through dealing with someone else's sin for the rest of your life. Your course may be having to get up every day next to a spouse that is not a believer because you got married. Your course may be getting up next to someone who you do not trust yet, who has been unfaithful to you. Your course may be raising kids that are disrespectful to you, that do not respect you. Your course may be to live out of the brokenness of past abuse. Your course may be to suffer through the pain of a failing body. Your course may be to suffer through the pain of your past sin and the consequences of your past sin. We have a brother in this church that is in prison now for years. Serving Jesus, loving Jesus in prison for his decision. That is his course now. God didn't make him commit that sin, but that is his course. And he is to run that course. 
Your course may be to suffer persecution for your faith. It may be to suffer the harsh removal of idolatry and sin in your life. It may be, listen, it may be to suffer the dashing of your dreams when you don't get to do what you thought you were going to do in your life. When your degree doesn't give you the job that you thought you were going to have. When you didn't get the spouse that you thought you deserved. Whatever it is, that's your course. I love John Piper says, wimpy worldviews make wimpy Christians. You know what makes a wimpy Christian? Someone that doesn't realize what he's called to do. As Christians, we are called to suffer. We are called to run the course that's been laid in front of us. We don't suffer meaninglessly. We oftentimes suffer because of our own decisions. But nonetheless, we suffer, but we suffer with purpose. We suffer with meaning because God has a course laid out for us that we are to run in. Now, that only makes sense. This point only makes sense if you understand the next point. Number five is this, the product of the exercise. The product of the exercise. Listen, the race that you are running whether it be one of the things I just described or something else, the race that you are running is producing more than an eventual crown. Okay, the crown is a lot. It helps us get through. Thinking about heaven helps. Uh, I feel like as a, a growing up as a believer, all I ever heard was, hey, suffer because you're going to get a crown. And that's true. The Bible says that. Absolutely. But there has to be more there to the, there has to be more for me than that to suffer well. I can't, I can't just suffer because someday I'll go to heaven. There's got to be more purpose in the suffering than that. The question I opened it up in the beginning is, is why does the crush, Christian need to suffer? If it's just to get a crown, then why don't you get the crown now? Let's get it over with. Just take me to heaven and let me get the crown now. Let me go to heaven now. Why do I have to suffer? It's a good question. And the answer is because God is producing something in you through the exercise. The beauty of training for a race is not just the finish line. It is what is produced by the exercise. The most valuable thing about you, I said this a couple weeks ago, I'll say it again because it's true. The most valuable thing about you to God is not what you do for him. He can do anything through anyone or anything at any time. The most valuable thing to God is not what you do for him. It's what he's doing in you. It's your faith. That is the thing that his, the apple of his eye is fixed on how he will perfect your faith. About how he will take you from being a faithless one to being a faithful one. About how he will take you from being someone who does not believe, like Thomas, like Peter, like the disciples, to being one who would be willing to go to the cross upside down, to be crucified like his master. That's the goal of the sanctified life. The goal is to increase our faith, to perfect our faith, to make us trust God. The product of the exercise is that we come out as mature believers who rely and lean on God. When I turn 80, if I make it that long... I don't want someone to say, man, Sam sure was a cool person, a strong person, a spiritual person, a knowledgeable person. I want, God, I want people to say, Sam trusts the Lord. I think there's a reason that when you get old, you lose everything. You lose your body. Sometimes you lose your mind. You lose functions of your bowels. You lose functions of your bladder. You can't do anything. People have to change your diaper. That's the most humiliating thing in the world. I hope by the time I'm 80, I'm humble enough to live in that. I hope by the time I'm 80 years old and someone has to take care of me that I say, this is how God found me and this is how God's leaving me. I was never able to take care of myself. I've been a baby when I was born. I'm a baby when I die. I'm completely at the mercy of God. I have nothing to bring to the table. I'm completely surrendered in weakness. God, it's all your strength and not me. The way that we die is the way that we are. The way that we go out of this world is the way that we are spiritually. We are in need. We're in need of God. Every second. That is the thing that God the Father is trying to perfect in you, perfect in me, is this reality. That faith is the most valuable thing. Faith is the muscle God is working in you every second. It's what he cares most about, working in you. And the goal of your faith is not just that it would be strengthened. Listen to me. The goal of your faith is that it would be perfect. Perfect faith. 
It's up to him to decide when that is. J.D. Greer said this. He said, God is a perfectionist when it comes to his purposes. He will not settle for anything less in you than perfection. And that's good news because he's the one who is the refining fire. He is the potter. He's the one doing the work. And so that's good news. There's a a primary difference between the Christian suffering and the non-Christian suffering. To be a Christian is to suffer. But to be a Christian is to suffer with great purpose. You see, people in the world, they suffer, but they suffer needlessly. They suffer, but there's no purpose in their suffering. This is the best life they'll ever have. For you and I, this is as close to hell as we will ever get. For the non-believer, their suffering is a warm-up for eternal damnation. For the believer, our suffering is preparation for eternal joy. The difference between Christians and non-Christians when it comes to suffering is that everything that happens to us, we know is for a purpose. It is strengthening our faith. It is moving us down the course. It's getting us closer to the prize, to the finish line, so that we might stand before God unashamed as we've run a faithful race, depending and leaning on God. Listen to the words of Richard Sibbs, the Puritan from the 1600s. He says this, he says, Glory follows afflictions, not as the day follows the night, but as the spring follows the winter. For the winter prepares the earth for the spring. So do the afflictions sanctify and prepare the soul for glory. Isn't that good? It's not, it's not like the, the day and the night. It's not like the day and the night. It's, it's, it's that, that the winter is literally preparing the earth for the beauty and the life of spring. Now, I'm not trying to sound like a health and wealth guy here. But can I just be honest with you? We go through really bad seasons, but those seasons are preparing us. They're preparing us for good seasons. They're preparing us for great things. Your suffering is not needless. It's the one thing I wanted to say to you guys tonight. Your suffering is not needless. It's not pointless. You're not just grinding it out for no reason. It's all pointed. It's all a tool in God's hands. It's a tool of precision for him to craft in you a miraculous and eternal and powerful faith. It's really good news. Number six, not only the past racer, not only the prescribed apparel, not only the perseverant pace and the producer of the course and the product of the exercise, but number six, and most importantly, so if you've been sleeping until now, please wake up. Most importantly, the perfect, the perfect racer, the perfect Racer. The thing that the, that the author of Hebrews wants us to see here is that there is a perfect racer. And this racer is our perfect example. Look at the text. In verse 2, it says what? Looking to Jesus. The founder and perfecter. Other translations say the author and perfecter of our faith who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Consider him. Consider him, it says. Consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The point is, is if you are struggling with suffering as a Christian, you have to look at the one who struggled the most. The perfect exemplar of faith. The perfect exemplar of struggling is Jesus. He ran the race perfectly. Now, I want you to get the translation right, and this is important. The ESV, unfortunately, I don't think they do it right here because there's a word in this sentence that is added. It says, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of, now, if you have an ESV version, it says, our faith. That word, our, is not in the text. It was added for clarification. I think, unfortunately, it changes the meaning of the text. It's, no, it's not saying that he is the author and perfecter of our salvation, although that's true, right? God in his sovereignty, he's the author, he's the perfecter. We can find that otherwhere in the Bible. But that's not what it's saying here. What it's saying is, is that Jesus is the author and perfecter of faith. In other words, he ran his race perfect. 
He did it the right way. He suffered the right way. I love the way the NIV says it. It says, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of faith. Man, he did it and he did it right. He did it perfect. Now, in order to understand why that's important and why that's even worth bringing up, you have to understand a theological truth. And that is that God, when he sent Jesus, the plan was not for Jesus to lean into his divinity being God. We talked about this a couple weeks ago on Sunday. It's not that he, he, he came to lean into his divinity, but Jesus leaned into his humanity. Jesus had a choice. He could live the life of a human living out of his power as God, or he could live his life as fully God, fully man, out of his humanity. He chose to live the Christian experience, the Christian life, fully resting on his humanity. Why? So that he could be the perfect Exemplar of the racer of the faith. So that he could illustrate for you and me how it looks like, what it looks like to run this race. And you say, but that's not fair. He ran it, but he is God. No, he set that aside. He ran it in his humanity. He ran it in his humanity so that we have the perfect example of faith and how to run it. Now, I want to quickly give you three applications because the question of this teaching is really, how do we run like Jesus? If we want to know how to suffer, we have to know how to suffer like Jesus. If we want to know how to run the race, we have to run the race like Jesus. So three things from the text here in regards to how Jesus ran the race and then we're done. And these are quick. Number one. Number one, Jesus ran a disciplined race. He ran a disciplined race. He counted every step. Jesus did not come onto the scene like a lazy, slothful teenager who just wants to sit around and wait for his mom to clean his room. Jesus burst onto the scene of ministry with power and intentionality, taking on the suffering that was ahead of him, passing the test of temptation, casting out demons. Every day, Jesus would seek the Father. He never went a day in his own strength. He was disciplined. He prayed when he was supposed to pray. He submitted when he was supposed to submit. He studied the scriptures when he was young so that he could fire out truth to the enemy when he was being tempted. Everything Jesus did in his race was done with intentionality. He didn't run sloppy. He counted every step. He knew exactly when to drink water, exactly when not to drink water, exactly when to eat, exactly when not to eat. He ran his race with precision and power and discipline. And you guys, we are to run it in the same way. Now, this message, it doesn't get preached a lot in the Western church because we don't like discipline. And we're afraid that it's going to lead us into legalism. But the reality is, is for Christians, in order to grow, we must be disciplined in order to run this race. We must be disciplined. Every breath, every word, every thought, every movement, every slap from an enemy, every tear, every emotion was bridled by Jesus for the purpose of his race. He was intent. He engaged the enemy. He ran his race with aggression. He pursued the prize. So number one, his, he ran a discipled race. And number two, and these two seem opposing, but they're both in scripture. So here it is. Number two, he ran a faith race. He ran a faith race. As I said earlier, Jesus chose to run his race not in self-reliance, but in reliance on God. The reason he did that is because the race that I'm talking about with you guys tonight, this race, it's not a race run out of your own strength. I hope you didn't gather that. The race of the believer is not to be a race that is to pull yourself up by your own grit and your own determination and your own strength and your own power and to run to the finish line. That is not the race of the believer. That is not the race of faith and that is not the race that Jesus ran. The race that Jesus ran was a race of dependence. It was a race run by decrease, allowing God to be his power, God to be what worked through him. A faith race is a race in which the contestant moves forward, not by their own strength and tenacity, but by their level of dependence on God. For the believer to run is to give ourselves over to God, trusting in him and his strength. The faith racer grows not by self-reliance, but self-defiance. 
We grow not by leaning more into our strength. So this is where the gospel is in opposition to the world, the world's philosophy. The world is believe in yourself, trust in yourself, use your strength, access your strength. The gospel is give up your strength. You don't have any. To run your race, you run it by the power of God. That's how Jesus chose to run his race. If anyone ever could have run a race in his own strength, it was Jesus. He chose not to. He chose to run it in dependence. And we are to run our race the same way. Every morning, we don't get up to read our Bibles so that we can become spiritual and so that we become wise. We get up and read our Bibles because we need it. Because we are weak. Because we are in the flesh by nature as soon as we wake up. Peter says this in the end of his epistle when he says, grow in grace. He's saying the point is not to grow in stature. The point is not to grow in spirituality. The point is to grow in the understanding of God's grace. The sign of a mature believer is his measure of surrender. The sign of a mature believer is his humility. The sign of a mature believer is how quick he is to admit sinfulness. How quick he is to admit that he is not strong. That he does not have what it takes I know a humble Christian when I meet them. I know a a mature Christian when I meet them because it's all Jesus and none of them. That's what maturity looks like. That's how we're to run our race. That's how Jesus ran his race. He ran a faith race, not a works race, a faith race. Pressing in, our strength is made perfect in his weakness. Amen? Operating out of God's grace is a discipline. You will not do it naturally. Did you ever think about that? There's a lot of disciplines in the Christian life. Fasting, praying, tithing. The number one discipline for the Christian is living out of God's grace. Everything in you wants to work. Everything in you wants to prove that you got what it takes. That you're worthy of God's love. This is not the race that we are called to live. And thirdly, Jesus ran an incentivized race. Look at what it says. For the joy that was set before him. How did Jesus endure the cross? How did Jesus despise his shame? How did Jesus endure the suffering? How did Jesus drink the cup of wrath and and, and absorb the, the eternal fury of God's holiness on all sin in the world? How did Jesus do something that frightened him to the point of sweating drops of blood in the garden? How did he endure the mockery and the shame and the beating and the spit and, and the brokenness of the cross? How did he endure that? The author tells us it, is, it was for the prize that was set before him. Well, what was the prize? Some of it was you and I. He was thinking of you and I. He endured for the church, his bride, to purchase their salvation. Some of it was the crown of glory that was to come. And some of it was the joy of obeying the Father. But this is what was on the mind of Christ. You know what was on the mind of Christ when he hung, unable to breathe? You know what was on the mind of Christ? You were on the mind of Christ. You know what was on the mind of Christ? That in a moment, his next breath would be in glory. That in a moment, all of his pain would be gone and he would breathe in the sweet oxygen of heaven, never again to feel pain, never again to feel struggle, never again to feel suffering. The prize was on his mind and it guided him through the worst suffering any human has ever experienced or ever will experience. Have the prize on your mind. We can endure suffering differently than the world when our joy is set and our joy is fulfilled by God. This is why when suffering comes, and it will, and it has, It is the believer, the Christian, whose footing is firm. Have you ever noticed that before? Your coworkers, they seem really prideful, they seem really really arrogant, and then something really bad happens in life, man. Stuff gets shaken. You know who they go ask? You know who they go talk to? The believer. Why? Because the believer has his feet sound on the non-moving rock. Because the believer has the answer to the remedy of the sickness of this world. I remember working in retail with non-Christians. When stuff hit the fan, they'd ask me, Hey, Sam, what's the deal with this? Why do you care about what I think now? Well, you just seem like you know who you are, okay? This is the difference between the believer and the non-believer. 
We know why it's hard. We know why there's suffering. We know where the hope is. We know why we suffer. We know where our feet are supposed to be planted. And we suffer well because our appetites are filled with God. Suffering cannot take our salvation. It can only purify our sanctification. This is the beauty of suffering as a believer and suffering as a Christian. And I just want to remind you guys of one thing. The real race was already won by Christ. Shame is beaten. And we are now running victory laps. We are running a course that he has already conquered. We are still to run a race, but we are to run in the victory of his perfection. You realize that Jesus, he he imputed his perfect race to you. He ran the perfect race and then he just gave it to your account. He gave you his trophy. He said, my perfect race is your perfect race. You get my score. You get my pace. You get my success. I impute it to you so that when you stand before God, you will have a crown. And that crown was purchased by the blood of the cross. Amen. That's the gospel. I'm thankful for it. Would you guys stand? Father, tonight we just praise you. We just thank you for your word. That it is sharp. That it cuts us where we need to be cut. Not that you're picking on us or or cutting us for no reason, but that you're cutting away cancer from vital organs. That you're cutting away the things that are killing us, the things that are choking out life in us. I pray, God, and I exhort those here. I pray for us all to step into this race with passion. God, give us the strength and the grace to humbly run in your strength to humbly take up this race, to strip away the things of this world, to set aside sin, to run the course that you've given us to run, to follow in your footsteps, and to run until we are with you in heaven. God, thank you for saving us. Thank you that you're with us now. And thank you for your Holy Spirit. We love you, in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great evening.